This program was made possible with support from Jazz Pharmaceuticals. If you or someone you know is over 50 years old and has a smoking history, ask a doctor about a low-dose CT scan. It will save a life. I think when you're faced with a diagnosis such as lung cancer, you need to have purpose. I certainly didn't consider myself a caregiver. I tried to assume a positive attitude and go from there. Obviously, I had lung cancer before I quit smoking. I just didn't know it. I didn't have symptoms. Anyone with lungs can get lung cancer. If you've ever experienced the fog of a cancer diagnosis, either as a patient or a caregiver, you know that disorienting feeling where everything shifts and suddenly you have a dramatic new focus in your life. And if you're like the patients and caregivers in this series, you probably also know that moment where you realize that you have to take action as you begin the journey to figure out what's next. Welcome to Caregiver Life Hacks, Small Cell Lung Cancer Edition. I'm Alora Nanos, your host for this series. I'm a mom, a lawyer, and also a caregiver. In this series, we are focusing on small cell lung cancer, or SCLC. Small cell lung cancer is more rare and more aggressive than non-small cell lung cancer. And until recently, it was highly underfunded and under-researched, which led to some dire statistics. But now there is new information, more treatment options, and there is hope. We'll be talking to three patients who are living with small cell lung cancer. We'll also hear from their non-medical caregivers, their friends and loved ones who play a very important role in their cancer success stories. Meet Rayanne Lehman. She and her husband, Dennis, live near Hershey, Pennsylvania. They're retired, but they have a very active life traveling in their RV to participate in dog shows around the country. They started entering their dogs in 1970. In 2018, both Rayanne and Dennis became American Kennel Club licensed dog show superintendents. After returning home from a dog show weekend, Rayanne knew that something was not right. I had been trying for three months at least to find out what was wrong. There was something wrong. And I had had various tests and things, and they took me to the emergency room because I thought it was having a heart attack. Did an x-ray and a CAT scan, and the doctor in the emergency room came in and he told me, you have lung cancer and I'm sure it's small cell lung cancer, which is the worst it can be. Are those the words he used? It's the worst it can be? Yes. He said, that's the worst cancer it can be, lung cancer it can be. And he was inappropriate telling me that because you can't diagnose it with a CAT scan. It has to be a biopsy. So he told me that and then he said, if I were you, I'd go home this weekend and get my affairs in order. Not only was it an inappropriate way to deliver a cancer diagnosis, it was also misleading. There are so many more options than there used to be for small cell lung cancer. One doctor's lousy comment caused Rayanne and her husband Dennis immediate anxiety and fear. And to make matters worse, Dennis was not allowed in the hospital with her because this was all happening in early 2020. Rayanne was diagnosed in March of 2020. Right in the middle of the pandemic. Well, right at the start. Mm -hmm. It was like the week after. So what did you do when Rayanne came home from the emergency room and told you what happened? We were waiting for the referral to the oncologist. Okay. 
we waited. In the meantime, we Googled, which we should not have done. And uh, based on some of the Google things, it looked like Rayanne might not survive the year. When you've been together for that long, and then you're potentially faced with being by yourself, it starts you thinking about, what do I have to do? And what did it get you thinking? Well, I, I just didn't know. I, I, I was trying to think of, how am I going to prepare myself for this? When I came home and Dennis and I talked and we talked about various scenarios and it was my life is going to be really short and everything, it was tough because at that time we hadn't met with the oncologist and I felt there was no hope. And I think he felt the same way. So how did you handle that moment? Did you feel the need to get things in order? What was going through your mind? Our affairs were in order. We even have our plot in the cemetery. We've had that for a couple of years. But if I'm dead in three months, what then? What's Dennis going to do? We have the house, you know, and the dogs, and what's going to happen here? So we talked about a lot of different scenarios about what we were going to do, how we could get through this, how he could get through it and everything. And after we talked about it for two, three days, it kind of, I think, hit us both that, well, maybe we could make this something different than what it is right now. Maybe we have some hope. We just need to get on the plan. We need to get an oncologist. We need to get started on this. So they told me the oncologist would contact me, and I waited, and after the fourth day, or on the fourth day, I hadn't had a contact. So I called and I said, I'm waiting to hear from you guys what's going on. And they said, oh, well, they told us it could be within the next two weeks. And I said, no, 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 no. I need to see one and I need to see one very soon. And two days later, I was sitting with my oncologist and I hit it lucky with an incredible doctor and an incredible team. And the first thing I said to him, I said, okay, I've got small cell lung cancer. What are we going to do about it? And it wasn't looking back, it was looking forward. So how did you find that strength? Because self-advocacy is so important, but it's not always easy to do, especially when you have the weight of a cancer diagnosis looming. I said from the beginning, when I got the diagnosis and found out that I was probably going to live a couple months, after the initial shock, I realized that, you know what, I'm 74 I have had a really, really good life, a very fulfilling life. I've had lots of experiences, both with Dennis and in my professional life. I've been able to make some people very, very happy and help them along their journey with different things. I feel that I was very fortunate in my years. Since then, I've felt even more fortunate because I have great support from family and I have Dennis. And Dennis is a rock. He doesn't say a whole lot, but he's always there for me. And if I ask, he does. And he has stepped out of his shell with a lot of different things that he never had to do. He talked to me a little bit about the changing of roles. He Talk to me about, you know, chores that he's taken on that he didn't know so much about. We're the old school. So it was his role and my role. And now the roles have changed and it's more of a coming together. 
What would you say the biggest change has been? I think his biggest change has been cooking. He never cooked. He did mention that he, he can make spaghetti. but <laughs> he, Yeah, he's, he's the spaghetti king. Be honest, how, how's the cooking now? Well, as long as I'm able, I am cooking. But he does help more in the kitchen. He's not one to come in and start chopping vegetables and things while I'm doing something else, unless I ask. And if I can do it and I'm able to, I do it. I did teach him some of his very favorite recipes because I was sure I wasn't going to be around this long. And I wanted him to be able to make the things that he really enjoys in life. So I I have to stop you before you even go on. So one of your reactions to you getting a lung cancer diagnosis is that you thought, I need to teach my husband to cook the meals that he likes best so that if I'm not around, he can have what he likes to eat. Yeah. That's a remarkable attitude. Well, I worry about him because I know he's capable. It's just it's not his normal activity. And and I'm, I'm still worried about him. And I've talked to our son about him and I've talked to other people about him because he is content to stay at home, sit and read a book day after day after day. And I can see a hermit coming. I really can. And yet he has a lot to give to the world. I would like him to stay active. So I've kind of hinted to people that, hey, when I'm not around anymore, you keep nudging him and keep him active. Do you worry about, you know, the stress of being a caregiver for you uh, or about kind of what emotions he's going through? Do you think about that? The original diagnosis was really tough. The worst and the only time that I have really broken down crying was when I had to tell him what it was or when when we were in the oncologist and the oncologist told both of us what it was. As soon as I saw the tears in his eyes, then I broke down. Rayanne and Dennis have been married for 56 years. When I was talking with Dennis, he told me how they had been friends in college, and once they started dating, they had been pretty much by each other's side ever since. And while he was very positive during most of our conversation, I knew that there had to be times when caring for Rayanne must have been difficult. It seems like you and Rayanne are such a great team, so I'm sure there must be some part of this that hasn't been so easy to just take in stride. The one thing that got me was back at the start, Once they had gotten the referral after the emergency room thing, they found she had a collapsed lung and there was fluid. And they had drained, uh, I think it was a liter of fluid in the emergency room. After they put the drain in, they had the visiting nurse come every other day. And we saw the procedure with the vacuum bottle and all that. And I don't know, she had only been here two or three times. And she said, uh, okay, now I have to teach you how to do this. And I said, what? And she said, well, yeah, insurance is only paying for me to be here a certain number of times. Maybe it was two weeks. So I had to learn to do that. And what was that like? Well, you know, the sight of blood other than my own doesn't bother me. But when it's another human being and then somebody that close, it's it's difficult, but it's something you have to do. You know what I mean? So you just bite the bullet and you do it. It's eye-opening when you are forced into a situation like that 
it's just one of those things, you know, you, 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 you suck it up and you do it, but it wasn't fun. Dennis, are you proud of your ability to be there for AM? We took our vows and we said, hey, you know, richer, poorer, sickness, health. And um, we try to live to those. But I, I can't say I'm proud. I mean, you know, it's just, hey, I'm here. It's my responsibility. Fine. I got no problem with that. What's been the hardest part of, of becoming a caregiver in that way for you? Um, sometimes not being able to go off by myself and do what I want to do. I never thought we'd get to this point this quickly. Yeah. The thing is, we've been, uh, we've been very fortunate all through our lives, and we're very fortunate with this because she has a good team of doctors that she really has a lot of faith in. The courses of treatment that they have laid out have worked. She's, I think, her, their second oldest surviving patient with small cell. You know, one of the words that you have used so many times over the course of this interview is the word fortunate. Did you go through a period of time where it felt all just so unfair to have been hit with that? Oh, yeah. I, at the beginning, for a short period. But it was very short because once she started with her team at Hershey and she had been through a series and we saw what the results were, it was uplifting to know that, hey, there is hope. I know I say, you know, that we've been very fortunate a lot, but it's the truth. When I look at experiences that other people have had, we've been very lucky in our lives. And yeah, this was something, you know, I'd rather not have had, but we're trying to make the best of it. In addition to family caregivers, an oncology team can make a huge difference in small cell lung cancer treatment. Individualized treatment plans can be created for a patient's specific lung cancer. These personalized plans can help to avoid other treatments that are unlikely to work and can also help to decrease side effects. Having a plan, knowing your options, learning about clinical trials, there are clear actions available. And so, Rayanne, here you are almost four years since your diagnosis. How are you doing now? Right now, our life is rather stable which is really nice. I know we're going to have more setbacks. I know there's going to be times that he's going to have to take over a lot more than he does right now. But for right now, it is amazingly stable. Meet Maida Manjameli, another patient living with small cell lung cancer. Maida and Rayanne actually know each other through an online SCLC support group. Maida is retired and lives outside Chicago with her husband, John. Maida was a lifelong smoker, and when her granddaughter was about to be born, she knew she had to quit smoking. It took her a while, but she did it, and then, just two months after she quit smoking, Maida was diagnosed with small cell lung cancer. Maida has an infectious laugh and an inspiring attitude. You know what? If you lose your sense of humor through all this, you've lost everything. Oh, I'm sure that's true. There are days when, if my husband will attest to it, I have no sense of humor at all. So I have to grab the giggles wherever I can. Oh, I love that. Grabbing the <laughs> giggles. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about why you agreed to do this. Well, it's almost exactly five years to the day I was diagnosed with small cell lung cancer. And especially that first year and a half was very, very difficult. 
And to think that I would still be here five years later is kind of amazing. And then I feel like I'm still going strong. So that's awesome. There are people who get diagnosed who give up before they get started or they make the mistake of asking their oncologist how much time they have right in the very beginning. And these doctors have to answer the question. So they use outdated info and they tell people, well, with treatment, you might have 18 months or without, you might have six months. And I'm here to tell you, I know people who are living like me five years, 10 years, 12 years with small cell lung cancer. Was that something that happened to you that when you were first diagnosed, you were you know, told that you had a certain amount of time? No which is one of the things I love about my oncologist. And the interesting thing is at my very first appointment with him, I, I had my one and only blood grandchild. So my beautiful little girl was a year old. And I said to my oncologist, I need to be here long enough for my little Sloan to know me, not just through videos and pictures. Well, this little girl who's six now, and it's so cute. I'll send her packages because they live on the East Coast. And she gets excited, even when it's just closed. Oh, Grandma. Oh, Grandma. Thank you so much. You know. So it sounds like your granddaughter, Sloan, is very important in your life. I quit smoking because of that grandchild. So what was the quitting process like for you? It took a long time to finally quit. I mean, I was smoking a heavy smoker. And that last year, I cut down to about three or four a day and then finally was able to stop. Now, every time I saw my granddaughter... I was not even allowed to be near her unless I changed my clothes if I had been smoking, which was fine. I mean, that my daughter asking me to do these things is what helped me quit smoking. I'm not a smoker, but I, I have a lot of smokers in my family and in my midst, and I can see how difficult it is and what a sacrifice and what a hurdle it must have been to quit after a life of smoking. And then to be faced with this diagnosis so quickly after that, yeah, it must have yeah. been really difficult. It wasn't difficult. It was shocking to me. Obviously, I had lung cancer before I quit smoking. I just didn't know it. I didn't have symptoms. My last primary used to send me for a test x-ray about every two or three years because he knew I was a smoker. After the age of 50, the protocol is to get checked for lung cancer. And that's usually with a CT scan. You sound to me like someone who, once you got that diagnosis were very willing to do what needed to be done. And I'm telling you, Laura, the reason is six years old. I was 67 when she was born. That's kind of old to become a grandma. I could cry. I adore this child. It's a love that you don't expect to give and to get. It's what's kept me going. Does Sloan know about your lung cancer? No, and this is, this is something that I've tried to talk about with my daughter. I think that she should be told. I thought she should be told a year ago. Everything I've read has said that by the by time, you know, if you only answer the questions that come, like with any questions that little kids ask you, that they can handle it. And I know she could handle it better knowing that there might be something wrong with me than suddenly being told grandma died. You know, I mean, because when my last dog died, the kid cried. She adored my last dog. And how was she going to respond when she was that upset about Bailey when it's a grandma? So I don't know how to convince my daughter it's time to tell her that we can do it on FaceTime. We can do it together. So she sees I'm still okay, but grandma's sick, and some days she feels worse than others. I mean, it's as simple as that. But 
what can you do? I know it, it's complicated with young children it because is. you yeah. want to protect yeah. them at the same time and include them in, in the same time. Well, because you want them to somehow be a little bit prepared in the back of their mind. And I can't bring it up too often with my daughter or she just gets aggravated. I'm not one of those grandmas who's going to just do it anyway. Who's just going to blurt out something when I know it upsets my daughter. It's not my place. It's my place to spoil her and love her. <laughs> it sounds like Sloan is is in in an interesting way, almost uh, without knowing it, part of your care team in a way, because she's contributing to how you feel, even though she doesn't even know that's what she's doing. Oh, yeah, exactly. Everyone in my life knows that about me. Then it's for Sloan that I'm still here. Yeah, you're right. Excellent point. It's kind of a magical thing that kids do. It is. I mean, if Sonny hadn't been born at that point, I don't know if I'd still be here. I don't know if I would have gone through with everything I went through. Well, I mean, there was no question I was going to take care of the growths on my spine because I wasn't going to let that take me out. She was still too young. I think there are some people like you that they live in so many ways for other people that it's like even even continuing to extend your life and to take care of your physical health is less about you than it is about someone else. Yeah, no, I agree. Absolutely. Who is your day-to-day support system? I know you mentioned your husband several times. Well, tell me a little bit about your husband. What's his name and, and what's his role in oh, this? Oh, his name is John. Um, when I told him that I would be do- taking part in this and that he may also be taking part in this as my caregiver, he looked shocked. He never thought of it. He said, I never thought of myself as a caregiver, but he's the one who made sure I got to every appointment. He still takes me to the oncology. And then I've got a couple neighbors that care. So do you think of John as a caregiver, even though he doesn't think of himself that way? Well, yeah. I mean, he was. I don't, Not so much now because I don't need it as much. Sure. But yeah, I mean, he was always saying, you know, what will you eat? What can I get? What can I make? How hard was it for you to kind of accept the caregiving from your husband, from your neighbors? Was that an easy transition? No, very hard. I was always so used to doing things for myself. And now if I get up on a step stool and he's around, it's like, just what do you need? Because he's 6'5". What do you need? He just reaches up and gets whatever. (laughs) And yet I still would fight him and say, I can do it myself. I mean, it's hard to give up control even a little thing. So it's not easy. Then it sounds like both of you are probably doing a good job communicating. Well, can I tell you something? Yeah. Last week we had our 52nd anniversary, which I keep saying, no, that was our parents were married for that long. <laughs> I don't know how we got there. But um, there are some things after 52 years, if you don't know about each other, where have you been living? You know, <laughs> After 52 years of marriage, I assumed that Maida's diagnosis had a strong impact on her husband, John. So I asked him what it was like to be Maida's caregiver. Well, I I certainly didn't consider myself a caregiver. At at most, I think that I was uh, there to uh, make sure that she would get to her appointments, that uh, I tried to um, assume a positive attitude and go from there. Is there anything about this journey that was kind of surprising to you or that was maybe difficult to adjust to? Well, I think you come to the realization that there's almost nothing you can do to help. All you can do is be there and offer support. Since she has small cell lung cancer and it's not a curable cancer, 
the only thing you can do is uh, try to provide whatever positive influence you can have, make sure you're there for her when she needs something, and uh, and hope that things go well. How do you think you do in that role? Is it something that, that is a natural fit for you? Is it something that's a struggle for you? Well, I think in general, I'm a positive person. And uh, in general, I just try to be there when she needs something. But she doesn't always tell me when she needs something. So it's a little tougher. Yeah, I think a lot of couples can probably relate to that, trying to figure out how to help your spouse when they're not specifically telling you exactly what it is that they need. Yeah, well, I, I was never particularly good at anticipating what she needed before she had cancer, so I'm not sure that having cancer helped that. As your wife said, listen, we're still married, cancer or no cancer, right? It's we're still husband-wife. It's not going to be that different. We're still in the same relationship. So that might be what she told you. What she tells me is a whole different story. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Montessa Lee's story is very different from Rayanne and Maida's. Rayanne and Maida both had a history of smoking, they were retired, and they had their lifelong spouses as their caregivers. Montessa, a non-smoker in her late 20s, had recently graduated. She was single and had just moved to a new state to begin her teaching career. She was also enrolled in grad school, and that's when she started noticing symptoms. It was late 2006, and I was in a grad school program for special education, specifically autism and um, inclusion. It happened to be during the summer when I first started feeling symptoms. Actually, the end of the school year, but I, I didn't recognize what was going on. You know, shortness of breath, and then we went in the summer, school started, and I was living life. Of course, yeah. You're in your 20s. Things are just getting off the ground. You're supposed to be carefree. So what happened? I started having symptoms like a shortness of breath and walking to my school from the parking lot, which is a slight incline, but it's really a flat walk. I was out of breath going into the cafeteria for breakfast duty. I was like, you know, breathing heavily. And then I started having some slight chest pain and a cough that wouldn't go away. And I was like, hmm, you know, let me, let me go to the doctor and, and see what's going on. Were you worried about anything? Absolutely not. Yeah, I wouldn't be worried either. And I certainly wouldn't be thinking about lung cancer. I would just like chalk it up to like, I don't know, I should spend more time in the treadmill or something. So what happened then? I went to the to an urgent care facility, the, the first chance. And they came in and said, oh, you have inflammation around the rib cage, just costeochondritis. I said, oh, yeah, that sounds reasonable. I've been working out it's my slight workout <laughs> in the gym. And I said, okay, yeah, let me take these ibuprofen, go home. And, and um, when I'm about my business, still the cough wouldn't go away. Chest pain increased. I'm like, hmm, something is not right. Let me go back to the doctor again, especially the cough would persist where I couldn't really sleep at night. The cough was really increasing. And um, of course, was misdiagnosed again. And and you were misdiagnosed with what? 
The second time they said I had bronchitis, I was like, wow, because she says, has anybody told you you had a heart murmur, a whopping heart murmur? And so, you know, she sent me to get my heart checked out, never gave me an x-ray. Now, mind you, I didn't know that even from bronchitis, they should have given me an x-ray. At this time, I didn't know. You know, you walk in and somebody explained it to me later. And so I'm trusting what they're saying. And I was like, bronchitis, I'm around kids all day. Maybe it's, you know, it's contagious. It sounds right. Right. That's not unusual. Sure. But on my way to grad school one night, the chest pain was stabbing chest pain like somebody was stabbing me with a machete in the left side of my chest. Who knows what my mind was thinking? You know, I'm just like, oh, I'm going to go take this test and finish my class. And I mean, this is what we do, right? We're living our lives. And it's easy to think that the illness is the thing that you're doing. But really, it's not. We're all just having our regular life. And the illness is an intruder in that life. When I got home, the pain had kind of subsided and I almost didn't go to the ER, but I said, oh, they can give me something for this pain. Let's go. And that's where they finally gave me an x-ray. And that was in December. So from like September to December before they finally gave me an x-ray. Wow. Okay. So so you got the x-ray and did they give you a diagnosis there that day? No, they actually said, oh, we found a mass in your lung. And I heard the word IV. I heard the word possible biopsy. By this time, they had hooked me up, you know, the Pulsock machine. They'd give me oxygen. Again, because I'm walking around thinking I'm functional. You know, sure. I'm not realizing that the reason why I can't sleep and all these are probably related to lack of oxygen. And my thoughts went to my head. I'm a teacher. I can't afford this. And I don't like needles. I don't want any operation. And I was like, I have to go to work in the morning. I'm not staying here. The doctor said, do you want to see it? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And I looked at the x-ray and the way I describe it to people, if your lobes of your lungs are supposed to be dark on that x-ray and you're looking through binoculars, like imagine you're looking at the night sky through binoculars and somebody takes a paper towel and covers one of those lens of the binoculars and only one fourth is visible. So three fourths of my lung were covered with this mass. And I said, I guess I'm staying. How did you deal with the life part of it? Who helped you? Who was there for you? What did you do? I realized through this journey that I could not do it alone. You know, again, here I am pretty much independent, but I had to swallow my pride. While I was in the hospital that day, they finally did the x-ray and admitted me. At this time, I, I, I still didn't understand how sick I was. I mean, I saw that x-ray. So I, that's what I saw. But I'm there hooked up to the machines and my cousin had called my coworkers. So three of them come over to see me in the ER that night. And they get on the phone with my principal to tell them I'm not going to be at work the next day. What's going on? They set me up with paperwork from the sick bank leave when they realize how far I'm going to be out from work. Then I get connected with my church family after I find out what the chemo schedule and things look like. And they set me up with rides back and forth to the hospital. This is incredible. It, this sounds like you snapped into action multiple groups of people, family. Well, not me. <laughs> they did. They did <laughs> yeah. they, on their own? Yes. And everyone just rallied. Yes. When I finally got with my oncologist, the reverend who I just went on the mission trip with, she's she was the reverend of our mission trip team, called some of the team members I had went with, and they got a calendar out and set me up with rides back and forth to radiation and chemo because I had to go to two different hospitals for that. This truly sounds like a pretty incredible setup to me that, um, you know, here you are navigating this very difficult disease and diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And... It's not that you have, you know, one person to rely on, but you have multiple groups of people. And it sounds like they were extremely committed to making your 
day-to-day life manageable. And what I've realized is you can't process your feelings and things through this disease. You are just going through the motions. I write about that because I wrote a memoir at the end. And like I was literally just surviving. And surviving is different. And they were taking on all of this for you, like doing the thinking for you and the driving mm-hmm. and the planning. Mm-hmm. That What a gift that that must have been. We reached out to Reverend Belinda Gentry. She was the minister who was critical in scheduling rides and organizing the church volunteers who made up Montessa's care team. When we talked with Reverend Gentry, she spoke about the services that the church family provided, but she also spoke about Montessa. You know, some people, when they get a diagnosis, they immediately think they're going to die. But Montessa always had hope. And she believed that with the help around her, the prayers around her, and doing what they told her to do, that she was going to get better. And her journey allowed her to uh, be an inspiration to us as we care for her, but also to write about it in, in, in a book that her journey could help someone else. Uh, and always being positive, understanding that cancer is one of those things that can come back, but believing that even if it does, she's not alone, she's got help, and believing that through the treatment, she'll be able to get through this one too. You know, Montessa, a lot of people really have a hard time asking for any kind of help. Sometimes, as you said, it's because of pride. And I think a lot of times people are just sensitive and they don't want to burden the people around them because they know that everyone is kind of dealing with their own things in life. Yeah. And so, like I said, you have to swallow your pride and realize that this journey is a journey you can't take on your own. And that whether it be that you're on medication that's going to make you too loopy to drive, you know, you have to have that support system in place. And whether it's even joining a support group. So so maybe you're in an area where your family doesn't live near you, but maybe you have a support group that you join or that you reach out for some of these cancer resources that they offer rides to people. You know, they offer financial resources because that is a burden, that financial piece as well. And so you have to have almost a network. So if I think about making some graph or, or map that I have me in the center and I have all these things shooting out. So what do I need? What do I need food-wise? What do I need nutrition? What do I need spiritually? What do I need transportation-wise? Who's going to be in place? And maybe at the beginning of your treatment that you sit down with someone. Again, I didn't do this. They set it up for me. But looking back, you know, if I knew that, I would set up my bubble of people around me. What would you say to somebody that maybe doesn't have as many people in their daily life as you do? Right. And maybe they re- they don't realize that they have that many people. I knew I had extended family. I had no idea that I would be able to to have this many people reach out and step up and help. You know, I think that a lot of us don't know. You don't know who's in your circle until you really sit back and think about it. And it could be somebody you don't know. You know, some of the people that kind of um, signed up, I didn't know them as well, but they knew somebody at the church, you know, so they're reaching out a hand to do that. Having been the recipient of that kind of care, what made you then go take your own journey forward to become an advocate? I think it's something innate within me. We take something called the strength finders, and now things make sense to me because one of my top five strengths is empathy. 
and because I could walk in their shoes. I, I had another friend who was a coworker who was diagnosed with a different type of cancer. And because I had been through this journey, even though it was a different journey, it's a different type of cancer, I was able to kind of help and guide her and walk through some things. And then I saw it through the other side. And I'm like, wow, a patient shouldn't have to go through all this, you know, because she was trying to find some clinical trials. And I'm seeing it through a different lens when I talk to other patients. So did you think that you would still be here in your late 40s or mid 40s when you were first diagnosed? Before I was diagnosed, before I knew what it was, when I heard, you know, this wasn't going to be what killed me. You know, I had to stand on faith and believe. That was your mindset? This is not going to be what kills me? Yes. How did you get there? You know, it wasn't an audible voice, but I, like I said, I heard it in my spirit that said, this is going to be something bad, but it's not going to kill you. It's going to be a healing testimony. It's going to help somebody down the future. And I didn't know what that meant, but I had, and, and my other friends would call me, some people praying for me, a lot of people praying for me. And they said, this is not going to kill you. And I had to stand on that word because again, I was, I am naturally a pessimistic person. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, 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 is me. I'm, you know, reason why I never went in medicine or anything. No, I'm going to get a disease. Can't do that. Can't do that. But things are pretty different now than when you were diagnosed. What changes have happened that could help a current patient be a lot more optimistic? You know, it may look like things aren't changing fast enough, but me having a unique seat at the table from 2006, I can tell you that the needle is moving. In 2019, when they first introduced immunotherapy for small cell lung cancer, there have been other drug options, and I'm saying S with the plural, and that we are getting on the cusp of moving. And I know that the science is steadily moving, and there are researchers out there fighting for you. There are patient advocates out there fighting for you. If I could show you all a a visual picture, there is a group that I beat with and some other lung cancer organizations that now, that did not exist in 2006, have group meetings for people diagnosed with small cell lung cancer. Amazing. It sounds like like you're taking your experience of having this big community of people caring for you and sort of reminding everyone that uh, you're not the only one that has a, a big community of people looking out for them. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like Montessa said, the community of people surrounding you is often greater than you think. Whether your caregivers are extended family, a group of strangers, a devoted spouse, or the abundant love of a grandchild, it is clear that no one should go through a cancer journey alone. Reverend Gentry shared an encouraging message of support. Some people are afraid to talk about cancer or their treatment or what they're feeling. Some people, they hide for whatever reason. They're ashamed that their hair is falling out or um, their nails are turning black or whatever. But Montessa, she shared her story and her hope has given so many other people hope. There's a sweet, sweet spot in all suffering but you have to look for it. It's like if you lose a coin in your house and you want it, you're going to look for it. And so you look for that sweet spot in your suffering. The remarkable thing about Rianne, Maida, and Montessa is that while navigating their cancer diagnoses and treatments, all three of them continually thought about other people. They thought about their loved ones and also future patients who might receive the same diagnosis. Small cell lung cancer continues to be a part of their lives. Maida and Rayanne participate in an online community to find support and to support others. Montessa became an active advocate, educating others and working to demand more research and funding for small cell lung cancer. And while there's still no cure, advances are happening, and there are more options and treatments for SCLC than ever before. Biomarker testing can inform your doctors about your specific cancer. 
your oncology team can create a personalized approach to treatment, including finding potential clinical trials. And early detection is key. One thing we didn't talk about in this episode is the stigma associated with lung cancer. Because it is often associated with smoking, it can deter people from getting tested, getting treated, and even discourage them from talking about it. In our next episode, we'll take an in-depth look at that stigma and talk about how it has gotten in the way of research and funding in past decades. And you'll be reminded that anyone with lungs can get lung cancer. So join us for episode two of Caregiver Life Hacks Small Cell Lung Cancer Edition. And for more information and latest screening guidelines, check out the Lung Cancer Foundation of America at lcfamerica.org. And thank you to all of our guests, patients, and caregivers for sharing their insights and caregiver life hacks. I'm Alora Nanos. Take care and thanks for listening. If you or someone you know is over 50 years old and has a smoking history, ask a doctor about a low-dose CT scan. It will save a life. Caregiver Life Hacks Small Cell Lung Cancer Edition is an Offscript Health production. The executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producers are Joey Brenneman and Ariel Nachman. I'm your host, Alora Nanos. If you like the show, ratings and reviews are always welcome. Leave us a message at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-283-4666. Share your healthcare stories with us and we might play them on the air in a future episode. For more information, visit offscript.com. That's offscript, no T, dot com. <laughs>